0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This
1: podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We hope you all had a relaxing weekend. This week's guest is Christian Buttrick, a good friend and one of the most interesting guys we know. Christian is a high level athlete. He played college basketball at Penn State Altoona and now holds a blue belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. He has also practiced Kundalini Yoga and meditation for thousands of hours each, which is extremely evident in his presence, calmness, and humility. After graduating college and a couple near death experiences, Christian realized that life is too fragile to not take the risks you know you should be taking. He then took his leap, moving to Chicago to pursue a career in IT and develop his passion for Jiu Jitsu. In this episode, he shares his strategies for dealing with conflict, managing the ego, and approaching the biggest battle that we all face, the battle within our minds. He also shares his unique perspective on competitiveness, that is, competing only against yourself while using the standards of others as inspiration and support. We also discussed the idea that the body is the subconscious mind and how self-care practices such as yoga and meditation are actually for the benefit of others, not just for yourself. This interview is one of our favorites to date, and we think you'll take a lot out of it. We hope you enjoy this episode of Discover More with us and Christian Buttrick. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, today's episode is with a good old friend, Christian Bundrick. Uh, welcome, Christian. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. It's good to see you guys both here. Thanks for making the trip
2: out to Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah, just uh, hanging out for the holidays, and we'll be returning to Chicago on the 29th, so it's just good to relax and have a conversation with you guys.
1: Absolutely, man. Yeah, we're happy to be here. It was a beautiful drive up, and now we have a you know, great podcast studio to be mixing it up with. So, generally the way we kind of start our podcast is just you to introduce yourself, kind of some family history, where you grew up, where you went for school, and kind of where you find yourself now. Just brief introduction for our guests. Sure. So, uh, again, my name is Christian Buttrick. I am from
2: Pennsylvania. I lived here most of my life, um, sparing a few years in the D.C. area and also in North Carolina. After my parents split up, when I was around six or seven, my mom... Moved us up here and like raised us and the the dad would come up and see us every other weekend. And that's kind of how my childhood went for a long time. I've got five brothers and one sister, two of them, uh, two of the brothers are older. One of the sisters is older and they are way older. Like my sister's nine years older than me. My older brother, Justin, is 11 years older than me. And my older brother, Jared, is 12 years older than me. And so to my youngest brother, that's an 18-year difference. And that all came from the same parents, all came from the same mom and dad. Um, So they were already grown and out of the house when my parents split up. So my mom was kind of like raising four boys on her own, and there was a stepdad in the mix for a while. But after that, uh, went to Penn State Branch Campus, Wilkes-Barre, to uh, play basketball, and then transferred to uh, University Park, where me and Aiden met, and... Then after that, spent a couple more years at Bloomsburg and finally moved to Chicago where I'm now uh, working IT, uh, do jiu-jitsu a lot on the side. And yeah, that's pretty
1: much it. Um, yeah, awesome, man. Thanks for sharing. There's definitely a lot there and a lot to kind of move into. But one of the things that I think we'd like to start with that you know we talk a lot about is just... I guess the relation of family dynamics. Um, I know Ben and I are both the oldest child, which from what it sounds like you're kind of right in the middle. Yeah. So what did that, uh, I guess, relationship with both sides of both having younger siblings, older siblings, kind of someone always to learn to, but then always someone to give advice to? Where did you find yourself in that mix?
2: That's a really good question.
1: Um, so
2: one yeah since the older brothers and the older sister were gone i did feel like the older brother um especially of the younger generation i call it mm-hmm. but because you are in the middle for some reason i developed like that diplomatic personality mm-hmm. so whenever there was like a fight whenever there was an argument or whenever people weren't getting along i was sometimes even chosen by my parents to kind of like go in there and kind of defuse the situation and make sure everybody was on the same team, like uh, and and settle the fight, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, you know the older brothers, like Justin especially. He he came back from Japan. After a while, he lived there for a few years. After living in the co- after being in the Coast Guard, and he came back and he kind of acted like a father figure to us when we were in high school. And so I kind of learned a lot of things about being a man from my older brother, Justin. And so we, uh, as brothers, you know, we learned a lot together. We just, we, we grew together and, um, we fought a lot as like young, as young, immature kids, but as adults and going our separate ways, I mean, there's nobody in the world that we're closer with than with one another. So yeah, it's like a place when you have siblings. I know I want to have kids now because after reflecting on it, it's, It's something like you're proud of it's something that you're like, yeah I come from like a clan, you know, I come from I come from a a group that will always have my back No matter what and like I would fight to the death for these guys, you know I go to war with these guys. I would do anything for them So it's it's a place of like pride and like humility for me as well It's 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 awesome to have that as like my background and I'm like the luckiest guy in the world to have the brothers that I do So
0: so aiden and myself we often talk about the important pillars that family plays mm-hmm. because some families are more supportive than the others yeah and there's a stereotype says a lot of single child there tends to be more selfish right and single child tend to develop some of the more selfish and more of the individualistic self-centered tendencies mm-hmm. not always true but i have seen that over and over again with a lot of people yeah but you christian as someone who grew up in such a massive clan and family do you think what kind of personal traits to help develop from that do you think you learn how to share more often? Do you think you, you of course, you developed more diplomatic because of the the dynamic and you were the diplomat that diffused different situations. Mm-hmm. But what kind of personal traits do you think developed from growing up with such a big, large family? And can you talk about that and how maybe some of those traits have impacted your life professionally and personally growing up? Sure. So one of the things
2: is competitiveness. I'm super, especially with them, it's, it's super competitive uh, with everything. And, and it's not even in a negative way. It's not like, oh, I'm going to do more on my bench press than he could ever do. Like now, as we're adults, it's like, oh, like my brothers are doing this. They almost act that competitive nature from childhood almost acts as a like as a supportive beam to to rest your own standards on, even though you should only compare yourself with yourself. I believe, you know, you have your brothers. It's weird. They act as kind of like balancing poles for you in your life. You know, if they say, Hey, I've been doing this, I've been reading this, I've been exercising, I'm like well, why am I not doing that? You know, and so they always they are a place of like centeredness for me. And so we so competitiveness is one, but another one is is certainly sharing and certainly fairness. We're like very fair people. We want justice to be served when justice needs to be served, and we want attention equally to be divvied out whether that's you know love or affection or whatever when we were kids You know, the parents always had a hard time doing that, right? Like some some kids might feel like they don't get enough attention So I think that created a certain amount of like we we really like to see things be equal and so we give Everybody like, you know the same we we treat everybody I would like to I'd like to like put it in perspective like as a family we're like socialists, you know what I mean. We're, we all like we all share, you know. It's not like we all have our own things, but um, our well-being is like your well-being kind of thing, and, and it's 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 good as far as a close unit goes, right? I believe like being too selfish or being too individualistic with things is not always a good for the group. So it's made us really good for team environments, um, mainly because we have we we've been raised to think about. Um, the other team member and not just to be focused on our own benefit because I guess what you realize over time is if he's not doing well then that's going to hurt you too and and at the end of the day like you're going to succeed and you're going to get along best when you all are you know contributing equally to whatever it is were to yeah you know, so yeah like those are two main things um obviously camaraderie being able to just give your part and being able to like uh, be within a group and feel like you belong you know and a lot of people get into groups and I feel like they um, can't easily establish themselves as like their own person and still feel comfortable in the, in the, in, the co- in the cohesiveness of that unit so it's definitely there's a lot of benefits and I I could go into that for a very long time and I think those are the main ones I want to hit on
1: yeah that's a really powerful Almost juxtaposition, right? The competitive advantage, but it's not in a head-to-head competition, but rather it sounds an accountability portion of it, just sort of holding each other accountable. Yeah. But then also the fairness aspect of making sure that you know you guys are lifting each other up, not competing in that sense, but making sure that we're all doing this together, which I think is a fascinating dynamic to (laughs) I guess enter any kind of job or situation where you're working with a group. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're kind of a diplomat in a lot of senses, both in family aspects, and I'm sure that trickles over into your social life. What are, I guess, some approaches or strategies that you use to moderate a group or deal with disagreements If say, you know, a brother and sister on completely different sides of an argument? How do you kind of bring them together in that, I guess, moderating type role? You know what's weird? I've never had, like, I've never been asked to, like, lay that out before.
2: Mm -hmm. So what I would, when I first think about it, I just naturally... I never read this in a book anywhere until way later but it was something I realized that I did was just attempting to just find some kind of common ground within like within both of them because at the end of the day if there's an argument right or if there's like if me and you have if me and you have strict differences in like some ideological uh subject or anything we're never going to get past that. A lot of times you're not going to agree at the end of of a debate or an argument, but you can find common ground and you can find something that you both want and you can focus on that and you can, you can expand on that and and make them both realize, okay, in this case, we want the same thing. We don't want to both feel like crap at the end of this. And so, and so I go in there and try to like expose that, whatever that is. And, you know, that comes with like tonality that comes with like, Hey, I understand your position, you know? Hmm. Um, It never usually almost never comes with, hey, you're wrong here. You know, that's never how it starts. And a lot of times the the biggest thing, the two main things I've, one of the two main things I've learned with interacting with my brothers a lot is never take yourself too seriously. And you should be able to take a joke because if you can't take a joke, you're not going to survive in this household. Um, But the second one is... You, have to, you just have to be empathic to, to whoever you're with because they have a different circumstance than you. And we all mess up, we all make mistakes. So in life, there's not really anything that, that you can say that you're the best at. There's always gonna be somebody that's better than you and there's always gonna be somebody that's worse than you. And so if you can, if you can just find that place of non-judgment and come to that
0: place with that person, it's, uh, it's a good place to be to bring people together. So. That's powerful because it sounds like your family and this clan you grew up in served as like a micro of life. Yeah. Because what people over and over underestimate, especially in the IT field, is that the critical importance and mass of soft skills, right? I've always been an adamant and advocate of the importance of soft skills. Because I think if you have a certain level of intellectual hardware and work ethics and all these tangible skill sets... You can always train someone to be more technical. You can always train them with adequate and proper training to be better at their job, mm-hmm. but a certain tangible skill set. But self skills takes accumulation of time to build. You cannot train someone who has very low social or emotional intelligence to be emotionally advocate or adequate overnight, right? Because mm-hmm. it takes time and time and time to have those skill sets. Yeah. But you had the privilege and the fortune to. Like, born into this micro where you were taught that firsthand through your brothers, siblings, to diffuse and to navigate among your big clan to have the skill sets right away, which I'm sure spilled over and trickled over to your professional life, which we can talk about later on. Yeah. But I think it's super powerful that what people don't understand is that the importance of soft skills mm-hmm. because networking and people's skills are being thrown off so loosely nowadays, right? Yeah. Oh, what's your greatest asset when you go to an interview and you tell people... I'm a people person but yeah. what does that mean yeah everyone's a people person humans evolution speaking were human social biological animals everyone's a human person sure. like no shit. you're dealing with different humans every day but the extent of that thing uh, says a lot of volume yeah so i 100 percent agree the and like you know i met you for the first time for this interview session but then i realized you have this very common collective energy and you know mannerism about you and i can tell you're a very confident person I mean, aside from your six foot twelve or whatever, yeah. you know, you have the charisma and I, you, I can tell you have extremely high emotion and social intelligence, despite being an IT sector where the stereotype is, oh, they're socially awkward, they don't know how to deal with people because they deal with robots and AIs and data set all day, right? Yeah. But I think you're like an oh, outlier in that sense that you effectively, right away since I met you, you debunked a lot of stereotypes mm-hmm. and I can tell your family plays such a big role in that and so I just wanted to highlight that for the people.
2: Yeah, well, that was really well said. That <laughs> was well, more well said than I could have put that, but yeah, thank you. Um, I think I can put that into like two sentences or three maybe, don't, don't, don't hold <laughs> me to that. Um, but there's this important lesson I learned over the years because all my brothers are really smart. And so when it comes to you know, winning an argument or whatever, I've learned at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you can be right all the time And at the end of the day, people can still hate your guts and still, um, you can still ruin relationships. You can be a hundred percent right. So being right doesn't matter because you can be right all day and still be wrong. And, and being wrong, I, by, I mean, not treating the people that you're in that disagreement with or that conflict with correctly and not treating the situation like correctly. And I think that's so important how you do it versus what, like what you do.
0: I, lo- I love you share that because it reminds me of How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And in that book, it's like a very famous book in terms of like self-help book. Love and that book. yeah, in that book, he talks about how to win an argument. Mm-hmm. His answer is you don't. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. by arguing, <laughs> it's a lose-lose because by winning the argument, I just heard that other's feelings. Now that person has some sort of resentment feeling or negative sentiment against you. Mm-hmm. So next time you see each other, the social currency has went down from sure. that argument, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you lose the argument, you're a butter, and now you're offended, and the social currency goes down once again. Mm-hmm. But if we go a little bit deeper than that, is Ben Shapiro? He's a controversial figure, but he's very well known in multiple communities. So smart, right? Extremely extremely articulate and intellectual guy. But he has a saying. His mo is facts don't care about feelings, mm-hmm. but I think the vice versa also is true. Yeah. Feelings don't care about facts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can because people have this ability to manipulate data and different facts into how to serve them. So what's the point of, of bombarding someone with so much facts and data and logic? If that person doesn't wanna hear it, they're not gonna hear it. Cause at the end of the day, people hear what they wanna hear, see what they wanna see. Yeah. So that is super, super powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that was a great
2: analogy too. Cause Ben, you know, like Ben has a lot of good points, but I feel as though he does not relate to some sectors of, you know, the demographic very well. And, and he gets a lot of hate for it. And yeah, man, that was, that was awesome. That was really
1: cool. Yeah, really well said, guys. I think it's kind of crucial to point out that sometimes we talk a lot about the god value, kind of what you value the most, and a lot of people just value being right at the top of their god value. You know, I think sure. we should all appreciate having relationships count more than being right in a lot of senses, like setting that. I mean, in a lot of times, it's ego trying to be right all the time, just, all right, I need to get my point across. Oftentimes, I think relationships are so much more important than that, so I'm really glad that we kind of talked through that distinction between the two. Um, and I think from there, we'd kind of like to bridge into how this has impacted your athletic career. Yeah. Um, I know that you said you work, uh, played for Penn State basketball, and as well as some of your siblings have as well, so mm-hmm. how is that clan mentality of your family, the social dynamics that you learn from them, the shared experience and teamwork, how has that impacted how you show up in an athletic setting, whether that's teamwork or working with others or being coached, kind of always having that um, learner's mindset in a lot of ways? Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so when I was younger, I didn't do that. Well. I wasn't doing that well in school, like in seventh day, the ninth grade, when I found that I really had a passion for basketball. My, my school changed completely, and I started doing really well because I loved that sport so much. It was something that I could pour my energy into and really develop. It developed my character, but, you know, it's something that you can always... I think one of, the, one of the main purposes in life is to feel like you're always working towards something more. or Something like you're improving yourself in some way or another, right? Not staying in the same place you are now. All of that competitiveness back then, we were all more immature, So that competitiveness had a much more vicious nature to it. Like I wanted to be better than them. I wanted, especially Quinn, who's like closest to me in age. I wanted to be better than him by a mile, by like five miles, by 10 miles. So I worked so much at that, not only because I wanted to be good, but it was because I wanted to make sure he knew that I was way better than him at basketball. So, that and the dad plays the dynamics too. My dad was an excellent athlete. So, anytime he showed up for my games, like, I really wanted to make him proud. Like, it was, like, an emotional thing for me as a kid, um, you know, trying to trying to get my dad's approval, even though he always encouraged me. You know, he was, he was so good at that. Uh, he always encouraged all my brothers in sports, something that, like, I will carry on for my children and even, like, my friends and stuff. I feel like my dad influenced me with how to communicate to your teammates like instead of you know because you can always go the other way you can always go dude like what the hell like why'd you do this or uh yeah you're not that great at that man you know but better luck next time instead encouraging and focusing on the things they do do well at and you know maybe constructively going back and like talking about other things specifically but yeah like it changed who i was like that that sense of i i will be better than you like you're not gonna be better than me, and obviously that continued on the court that continued in high school when I later on in high school, uh, I was a late bloomer, so later on in high school, I really like dominated my league and, and when I went off to college, you know it was a ground zero. I realized I wasn't good at all compared to these guys and it was like you're the new guy in the group and you're from a small town. so that your skill set doesn't really compare to the skill set of some of these other guys, so you have to work your way up there, but that same thing applies, you know? Like, like in the back of your mind, that I'm I'm not ever gonna give up, and I know that I'm better than you, I know I will work harder than you work. Like, you can be better than me now, but um, maybe three months from now, the gym time that I put in is not gonna be the gym time you put in, and I will make sure of that. So, yeah, like, the brothers definitely assisted with that, the dad being, Dad, who he is, a very competitive guy, very straight shooting guy, um, well spoken. You know, he he really helped us develop that that mindset of competitiveness. Um, but you also have to manage that with team dynamics, you know, even though you have that competitive nature within, and somehow you have to balance that dichotomy with that, and hey, you're my brother, I got your back, you know, we're in this together. And it's a very small line. To bridge across, um, a lot of people find it very difficult. Especially, like some people do not do well in team sports. Some people do much better in individual sports like combat. And so, yeah, it's like sometimes I'm glad I don't have to focus on a team when I'm, you know, doing jujitsu or whatever because
1: it's a uh, it's a it's a totally different mental playing field. So, mental field in what in what style? The fact that you're going at it from just yourself, or I'm sure there's loads of similarities Mm -hmm. and conflicting things between basketball and jujitsu, but I guess now that we're Mm -hmm. going down uh, into this jujitsu, but I guess the, how did you find Mm jujitsu, especially from the athletic background and what is that um, relationship developed into? Sure. So to answer it, the first question, um, I
2: don't have to rely on anybody else. You know, you don't have to, like, it's a a different mental playing field because you're the only person you have to rely on. In basketball, there's four other people on the court with you that you're, um, you know, you're accounting for, you're moving around for, you know, you're making, uh, you're making charges for, you're passing the ball to. You don't have to take the entire burden on for yourself. Some guys, some professional guys even, like, you'll see how they operate. It's like, when they get into the game, it takes them a couple minutes to get warm before they even start scoring, because they rely on everybody else, you know, they'll play defense, they'll focus on one aspect. But, you know, in fighting, you have to be ready right out of the gate. Or else you're going to get tagged, you're gonna, or you're going to get submitted, or you're going to be in a bad place. But to bridge it, how did I get into jiu-jitsu? So, I mentioned my brother Justin lived in Japan for a while. While he was in Japan, he wanted to start learning how to fight. So he went to this uh, famous K1 fighter in Japan's gym. His name is Nicholas Pettis. Nicholas Pettis is famous for a lot of things, fighting-wise, over there. But in this one match, he like he kicked some guy and he snapped his leg in half, and it kind of like ended his career. But he was a really, really good fighter. So he knew what he was doing and stuff. So Justin started to learn how to kickbox over there and how to do jiu jujitsu. Um, and after a while, he had to come back to the United States, but he brought back that stuff with him, and he started to tell us about jiu-jitsu, And at the time, I was in high school. I was like 15 years old. I rolled with Justin maybe a couple times, um, but it wasn't something I was really into. And then I was like more into basketball, you know, I was obsessed with that. We're all guys here. And like, as you get older, especially for me, like I always in the back of my mind was afraid of what I would do in like a, a bad situation and a combative situation. And I always kind of, there was a part of me that looked at another part of me, like the child part of me as weak, you know, as scared. And I didn't know how I'd handle myself in like a combative situation. You know, I was a bouncer at a a bar and like, you know, I would have to like hold people back and stuff. But if somebody was really coming at me for my life, like I was insecure about that, you know, as I think a lot of people are and, and should be for that matter. Um, because, could I handle myself in a, in a lethal situation in a dangerous situation? And you know, the answer was no. And that didn't always hit me all the time. You know, you're busy with life. Like that's not the first thing you think about. Like we're all in a pretty safe environment. You know, you, 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 we get to get up, check our phones, eat breakfast, take a, like a nice warm shower, you know, go to work in our nice cars and then come home and go to sleep in a really comfy bed. But every now and then it would like, it would eat on me. And You know, there's just like that part of like rite of passage. It's almost like a rite of passage. It's like a man, like I wanted to know how to defend myself. So uh, a couple years ago, after going through some traumatic experiences with like girlfriends and stuff like that, it just was like, man, like I felt like some of my masculinity had been like even more taken away. So I was like, well, you know what? I want something to achieve. Like I want something to like uh, have a like tangible achievement in. I want to learn a new skill. Uh, I want to be the new guy in the room and, and all of that fit into jujitsu. And I was like, well, you know, I liked it when I did it. It was really fun when I did it. Like I felt more alive than I ever felt in my life. Well, let me go to Jay's. In fact, I was at the YMCA. I was shooting baskets and Jay happened to be there. Who's the instructor of reflex jujitsu in Danville, Pennsylvania. Shout out to Jay. Um, he was in there and he's like, hey, listen. He's like, what's up, man? And I was like, hey, you know, I've been wanting to come train. I just like, I can't afford it right now, man. You know, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, finances. And he said, you know what, dude, you are Justin's brother. Because he trained with Justin for a long time at Bloomsburg. He's like, you, you don't have to pay. You just come, you just come by like Justin's family. So you just, you just come if you want to come. So I, like, I trained there for like four or five months there before I started paying. And I, by then I was really into it. And so I just was like, okay, I got, I got to keep doing this because this is what I love to do. And so that's the story of how I got into it. When I, once I started doing it, I was like, this is fantastic. I've never had more fun doing anything. Like basketball was, was the first, my first love, but I'm pretty sure this is like even better to me. Like it's just
1: so much fun. So uh, yeah, that's... What element about it makes it so much more fun that it's, I mean, you mentioned it's just on you. Um, One thing that I thought was fascinating was how you said you wanted to be the new student in the room. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious as to where that came from or why, I mean, I guess that's two questions. Kind of why did you seek this out to be the new guy in the room? And then once you were the new guy in the room, what about it, I guess, spoke to you so actively? Being the new guy in the room makes you
2: uncomfortable. That makes you uncomfortable like you're day one like you don't know anybody in there it's kind of like it's kind of tough like i wanted something to challenge me as a person one thing i had always had issues with one and i'll take it back to the, the start of why i did it was i was just afraid of conflict man like i would build up resentment to the people i loved and cared about because i would not tell them what was bothering me like sometimes i would but like other times I would just keep it inside and let it eat at me eat, and eat at me and eat at me what jiu Jitsu does is interesting because I, I believe the body is the subconscious mind so if you embrace conflict with the body and you embrace it on a day-to-day basis and you you know you embrace getting smashed into the mat and you know getting choked out and getting your back taken and all and you getting your knee on getting somebody's knee on your belly and and, and getting smothered, if you embrace all of those things with a sense of calmness, if you learn how to be calm during those things, and I think it translates, and I know it, it translates for me personally, into being able to deal with conflict in a more calm way and actually being able to uh, deal with that conflict and embrace it and save your relationship who, with whoever you're dealing with. Because I think the important, one of the most important things I've learned through jujitsu is if you don't create that conflict with the person that you care about, your relationship could be destroyed. And so sometimes people are like, oh, I'll keep the peace. I think it's a terrible idea. I think you should embrace it and embrace it with the most skill and like the highest level of mastery that you have at your disposal. And I it was so... Anyways, um, I don't know if that answered your question sufficiently, but we can go back to that. No, most definitely. Addressing. That
1: was more than I was expecting because one thing that you said was the body is a sub is your subconscious mind, which I don't think a lot of listeners would really have any idea about. That's kind of like a some may call woo woo kind of idea. I know this is personally something that I embrace. I'm not sure, Ben, have you heard through? body being a subconscious mind we talk a lot it's a vehicle for Mm -hmm. subconsciousness we say one i think nick boleto said your body is the perfect accountant kind of it holds and manifests all experiences that you've ever had so especially in conjunction with your judicia experience what has that meant to you or what is the body being the subconscious mind Uh, maybe a, a brief explanation and how does that translate into your life
2: okay so an explanation I think people think that the mind and body are separate somehow, right? Uh, they think that, okay, I don't have to exercise, but this isn't really going to affect like my mental performance. But let's say you go to the gym. You guys are you guys are both fit and in shape guys. You guys seem like you go to the gym like consistently. How did you feel um, a year before you started going to the gym every day versus now when you go to the gym all the time? I think that's part of a rhetorical question because you guys probably already know the answer. I mean, you feel way better. You you operate better. You think clear. You think more clearly. You have more energy. You're most likely more ha- like you're more happy. You you handle things with an upbeat personality versus if you didn't work out and you just ate Doritos and Twinkies on the couch every day, you feel like crap after a couple of days and you probably feel depressed. So um, I don't know if that's like Hard proof, uh, I, I you know I, I've read things over the years through studying meditation and things that like I think I believe Carl Jung actually said that that the body is the subconscious mind, um, and he's one of the forefathers of psychology and whatnot. But yeah, I think that's the best way I would explain it. If that's the simplest explanation I could give, I mean you you by you making the body better, you're in a way making your life better, and you're making things mentally better for you. So. I believe that there is there is not just mind or body, it's just one, and we think of them as separate things, and I, I think that's an incorrect assumption. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: that's an exceptional point um, that we both definitely embrace. Uh I think a lot of people these days are calling it the mind-body, kind of all working together. I mean, you can recognize, say you get back from a run or a really good workout when the ideas are just flowing in and out, you just have more energy for the day. I think uh, this is how Ben and I actually became friends as we started going to the gym together at 5 a.m. every morning through January to March last year. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of that shared struggle, but also that shared enjoyment of the workouts, you know, that kind of built the camaraderie between us, but also allowed us to show up in the day. Yeah, um, A lot of how your, I guess, coworkers embrace fitness and things, but sometimes it's How do you wake up at six? Like, How could you possibly have energy to work out before an eight-hour day, before a 10-hour day, but it really all compounds on each other, you know? You probably wouldn't be able to be having the career successes or the relationship successes that you had if we hadn't started at the very bottom of taking care of our body.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's also well said, Aiden.
0: Yeah, so I just wanted to highlight a few things for the listeners because... Every time we talk something about meditation or mental state or consciousness or body-mind connection, it could be perceived as woo-woo or beta, Sure. And but in a tangible form. So of course having the mental clarity, when you eat healthy, when you look good, you feel good, those are like cliches. But cliches are tropes, right? So yeah. a lot of people recognize that. But I do want to make it a little bit more concrete for people is The fact that like all things aside, whether it does, whether you feel better, whether you feel smarter, whether Mm you get more clarity, all that aside, one sure thing is the mental overall aspect that Aiden and I talked about in the past. We all practice different habits in the morning and Aiden and myself happen to share a very similar morning routine. But like for you, whether it's playing basketball or whether you emerge in yourself in that conflict, self-induced conflict state through Jiu Jitsu, it's a mental ride. And, of course, it teaches you how to handle conflict, which I never heard before, but it's very, very cool. I'm motivated right now to stand up for her just <laughs> at the gym right now. But honestly, by by forcing yourself in this in this state of conflicts, you have to learn how to maneuver. You have to learn how to navigate those conflicts. Yeah. But all this, like the spillover effect, is it teaches you grit. It teaches you mental fortitude. All these, all these things. Yeah. So 100% like working out or being fit, all these definitely have a lot of effects. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to say that for the people. And that leads to my next question. Actually, is earlier we talked about you as an athlete, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, as a former D one athlete, of basketball. I would now you're concurrently still practicing jiu jitsu very religiously. Sounds like yeah, a lot of I think with a lot of employers in the job market, the reason why athletes are so highly sought after because the stereotypes around athletes, especially on that like level, high level skills, you tend to have a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. You tend to have a lot of charisma you tend to be very competitive and all these positive virtues that employers sought after. So my question for you is a former athlete who competed on that very high level skill set. Mm-hmm. How did you manage your ego? And because like you got the looks, you got the hype, you got the skills. So how did you uh, let ego not get into your way? Whatever aspect, maybe that's your personal life, mm-hmm. whether it's your relationship, whether that's your work. And if ego did get into your way, how did you manage that? What kind of lessons did you learn? Yeah, so I mean,
2: that obviously is, you know, still going on, right? That's a never-ending battle. And it can... I mean, that the ego sneaks in all back doors. Every back door that you have, it will sneak in, no matter no matter what. Um, just a correction. I played for a Penn State branch campus, so not D1. Still really good basketball players, but not D1. Little brother Trent plays for the uh, Division One team uh, now. But we can go into that later. I just wanted to make that correction, so... Uh, However, let's let's talk about the ego. Um, I want to go back to when I was a kid because when I was a kid, you know, I don't know. I didn't have a lot of self esteem. Like I didn't have a lot of self esteem. My brothers were better than me at a lot of things. Like I wasn't. Like I had to work at everything that I was ever good at. Like I was never naturally good at almost anything. Like nothing. Maybe like drawing, and I did it every day. So like that's, you know, I just got better at it because I did it all the time. Um, and then in school, you know, that carried over, right? Like I was a uh, you know, I was kind of like a, a like a dorky kid, right? You know, I just, I wasn't that popular. Like I was kind of like really awkward and gangly. Like um I had I grew into myself a lot, but all of that time, you know, I had I had you know, I was friends with guys and like teammates with guys that would like you know, pick on me all the time. And like may and and it was for my own good because after a while, I realized, like, I you know, I like to be in the class clown in class because, uh, you know, I wanted attention because I didn't get it a lot, right? Being a, uh, amongst a lot of brothers, people only have so much attention to give you, right? So, uh, you know, I would battle for that attention, however it was. So I, I would try to be funny to my class, even at my own expense. You know, I would make fun of the teacher, like I had a teacher. I remember so clearly when I was in a seventh grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Blockus. And like, you know, I would like make fun of her all the time in class and she'd get so mad. Like, yo, Mrs. Squares, you know, and then she'd get, she'd get furious. She's like, down to the office. Or I had another teacher who'd make us do pushups and I was, got so good at doing pushups because I was always (laughs) making fun of him or just having a good time in class. Uh, But basically all of those lessons taught me to like not take myself so seriously because I feel like that's what the ego wants to do, right? It's like, it wants to solidify itself it wants to validate itself because it wants to immortalize itself and because it, because it knows it's so part of it knows that it's so fragile so it tries to like make up a story it tries to make an environment where it can live i think if you're aware of that uh, it, i think that's half the battle and you know the ego does not go anywhere it's always going i'm not i'm never, never going to be in my end in this life so it's going to be with me. And, 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 part of it is me. It's not who you are. I don't believe it's who you are as, as a, a human being or as like Aiden or Ben, like, I think we are much more than that. Um, but it's how we operate in the world, you know? And so to regulate it, to regulate it, I think athletically speaking i was always not the, like on the team sometimes i was the best but other times i got crapped on all the time and you know the mind reminds you of all the things that you do wrong all the time and so i mean and and that's it humbles you and i think just to like to stay humble and always expose yourself to people that are better than you and you're always going to be subordinate to somebody you're always going to be not as good as somebody else and so to learn that lesson as soon as possible and, and realize that every man is better than you at something, no matter what, like some you are lesser than somebody in, in one regard or another, no matter who it is on this planet. Um, so yeah, I just had reminders along the way and I try, I, I have reminders every day, you know, like it's, that is the number one battle, man. I mean, that is like you, the, the battle within to, you know, manage My dad always called it it managing the five, like managing the five inches between your ears. And um, I've gotten better at it as time goes on. But I think an important thing is to um, realize that we believe everything we think and like that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) If we could just step back and go, that's not true. Or like, oh, that was just a thought. Then, you know, maybe we can save ourselves some of the suffering of attaching to that, that ego that wants to make itself bigger than it is, because it knows, because it, I think it knows deep down that it's like, it's not that big at all. And like, it wants to make itself significant when it's really not.
0: So, so with that, I actually want to ask a few strategies. Uh-huh. So we talked about, I like, I think it's something powerful you just mentioned is you have to recognize it's almost self-acceptance. That ego is part of you, right? It's mm. not a disease. It's not an external influence. It's not there to, how to get you. It is part of who you are. Yeah. And we talked about our last guest, M, who's accumulating hours to become a clinical psych, uh, therapist. Nice. But he talks. About, uh, we talked about how acceptance is the first step to recovery. You know, mm-hmm. that's like a uh, popular mo in the AA meetings. But in order to recognize that there is a problem, you have to uh, acknowledge there's a problem first. But in this case, yes, ego is definitely problematic and is hindersome to your progress. But in terms of for mental health sake, I think it's very, very, very important for you to acknowledge it is part of who you are. Uh, Your job isn't to eliminate it completely, but how to live with it, right? Yeah. Because ego will never leave you. Yeah. It's not something that you can just poop out and it just disappears forever. Right. It's with you since the day you were born until the day you die, like you talked about. Yeah. And so it sounds like you found ways... Through other strategies or experiences to manage your ego to a certain degree. Yeah. Where it's obviously it's not severely hindering your life, mm-hmm. right? I feel like if you're super egotistical, Aiden probably wouldn't recommend you as a guest. Because obviously we're attracted to people who have similar beliefs and values. And e- egotistical people, because I was an egomaniac and I was super narcissistic in college. That's something I very, very uh, gravitate against. So I'm glad that uh, we're sitting here having this conversation, but yeah, I'd like to see, um, ask you some of the strategies or some of the practices. I know you do meditation, so feel free to dive a little bit deeper in that, but what are the things that you do to create the environments to make sure that you don't get overtaken by your ego? As you know, I
2: I think it's like a cliche to say, but like the ego causes suffering, right? So, and it wants to somehow avoid it, but it, constantly causes it through worrying about this, or worrying about that, or attaching to this, or attaching to that. I'll touch on jujitsu again very briefly here. You know, you are constantly, you are voluntarily putting yourself in a really difficult situation. And I feel like when you voluntarily put yourself in difficult situations, um, and when you kind of voluntarily suffer and you're doing it for a purpose, I feel as though it's a great way to inhabit another part of the mind, the part of the mind where you're free, where you're not burdened down by so much incessant thought all the time. So I think one of the things I do in the mornings um, for the last year and a half, I've been taking cold showers every morning. Like I just get in there, I turn the, cold, the, the shower as cold as it gets and I just sit in there for three minutes. You know, and you'll be surprised how much you don't think in that cold shower after a while because you just have to you just all you can do is breathe and and you're just feeling the pain and eventually it gets better but like it's never merciful it's always pretty like intense no matter what so i think putting yourself in a situation where you're 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 suffering you know voluntarily it's like a, it's kind of like cleanses you a little bit you know i'm not I don't, I'm not for like, you know, whipping your own back, like some of these people, you know, some of these religious guys, but, um, I think in certain ways it's very beneficial, but yeah, you know, meditation and Kundalini yoga was something that I really gravitated to when I was in college back in 2014, like later on, that's when I started to do it. It was after, um, several experiences with, you know, psychedelics, I decided to try to get to those states without the use of psychedelics. Uh, kundalini yoga popped into my lap a few times like I read these I was reading like weird stuff like gnostic teachings incredibly out there kind of stuff you're like you read it and you're like what is this guy talking about but it like but there was a lot of meditative truth in what they were saying so you were really pulled into the material and then I found out that my best friend at the time his mom was a kundalini yoga instructor for years and years and years and it was just something I felt like Oh, I should, I should get into. And I started doing Kundalini yoga. And like the first time I did it, I mean, I I had a crazy experience the first time I did it. I was sitting there, and I was clo- and you close your eyes while you're doing Kundalini yoga. It's weird. You actually look up into your forehead while you're doing most exercises, uh, which is weird. Like you don't do that in, in most yogas. You're taught to do that in some meditations. But, um, anyways, I had this experience where I was like sitting there in the dark. Uh, with my eyes closed and like there was just this golden ring that I was looking at and from the ring like the more I did the yoga like the the roots of this ring was like spreading out like it was almost like cracks in the dome of the blackness and it was just all like filamenting with light um it was weird you know it was just like it just came and went after several minutes and I was like that's interesting but yoga obviously helps because it's you know you're Dealing with the uncomfortability and the pain, and especially in Kundalini Yoga, the mind over matter. You have these positions where you're sitting in a spot and you put your hands over a head, like your head, in like certain angles, and you leave them there for like three minutes, six minutes, nine minutes, and you're doing like breath exercises while you're doing that. And it's incredibly difficult to do that. So, but you, but you can do it. You're strong enough. You just you have to get your mind to cooperate because your mind's like, oh, you need to stop. You need, you, this is pointless. Why are you doing this? You're, you're, this really hurts, dude. <laughs> um, but afterwards, like after you put your hands down, you know, you feel immense peace. Your mind stops chattering so much. You just, you feel like light. Uh, so it's a great tool. If anybody ever just needs something to just relax, I would suggest doing some kundalini yoga because afterwards you lay back and you just like lay on the floor. And uh, it's the most relaxed I've ever felt. And, you know, that's why I was addicted to
0: it for so long. And just, it was was a very peaceful time. Um, Can you uh, quickly define and explain what Kundalini Yoga entails? Because I feel like there's such a wide variety and variation to yoga nowadays. Yeah. Because I personally have no experience and I've never heard that before. Sure. So can you just explain quickly for the listeners? So Kundalini Yoga, um,
2: it was... Uh, Apparently its origins stem from like thousands and thousands of years ago The yoga was reserved for kings only Like regular citizens didn't have the knowledge Nor were they allowed to even know like how to do it And it was reserved for people like at really high levels of status It was brought over here by I believe a guy named Yogi Bhajan In like the 50s or 60s And so the, the term kundalini or kundalini yoga it's it derives from the idea that you have chakra centers in your body and these chakra centers uh there's like seven main ones and in, in other various uh, sects of belief or traditions you have like you know a bunch more and, but there's like the seven main ones and you have this root at the base of your spine called the root sh- root chakra and i'm going to spare myself the terrible uh, the terrible slaughtering of the name in Hindu, so I'm not even gonna try. I think it's like the Muladhara or something like that. But um, the idea is if you are living an ethical, moral life, if you are doing these practices daily, if you're meditating daily, Kundalini or the snake will rise up the spine and will eventually like come up to the top of the head, the the uh the crown chakra and um you will you know whatever you whatever you want to label that experience whether it's like satori or um, whatever you 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 achieve enlightenment or you achieve a sense of peace or you go somewhere else um obviously very alluring to anybody that wants some kind of religious experience outside of their own reality uh but I did it because it was it was very peaceful and it was um, and it was accompanied by strange things. But yeah, uh, it, it's it's certainly a good technique to use. I don't know if I went in depth enough on like the facts there about the kundalini, but I, I, that's where that's where it comes from, and uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, really great explanation. You mentioned some strange things came up. yes yeah. What does that entail? And how long were you practicing? How did your practice evolve from when you first got in there? And I guess what prompted those strange things that you're referring to? You know, sometimes,
2: I mean, the, most of these things are out of the blue, right? Like, I mean, you guys both do meditation, right? So you guys are familiar with at least some philosophers in meditation. And when you try to make things happen, they don't happen, right? Um, people want to, like... People want to experience whatever they call, like, you know, the energy source of, of everything, the universe, the God. They want to experience that, right? They want to, like, and, and some people say we all just, we're all living because we all want to come closer to whatever that is, right? So it's, again, it's a big motivating factor, but a, a lot of times our egos get in our own way. But... I guess to relay some things, many of these things happened completely off, like psychedelics or anything. Um, But I would, more frequently, when I was doing these things, I would have these states where I would lay down and meditate and um, it it, it kind of felt like a DMT-like experience. You leave, you, you, you don't have a body, you're flying through like, a portal going a million miles an hour, you're like, you feel like you're just going somewhere else in the universe and you're just flying through these portals and you pop out the other side in another world and experience something completely different. And I mean, this, I mean, these things happened to me more than a few times and it was, I mean, it was amazing. And I, it's not like a guarantee or something, oh, you should do Kundalini Yoga because this is what will happen, you know? Um. There's a there's a funny saying there like I do I would do chanting too right like I like uh, Krishna Das if you've ever heard of Krishna Das he has like the story of uh, him going to India and meeting Maharaji I highly recommend if you guys are interested in like that kind of stuff uh, go listen to his his stuff on Spotify it's a really cool really cool story he was good friends with Ram Das and I'm sure you guys are both know who Ram Das is uh, but he said. Um, he said, uh, this one guy came to him and he was like, hey, you know, when I do this chanting, when I chant uh, Hare Krishna, you know, I see this white light, and it like comes closer and closer to me. And he goes, keep chanting, it'll go away. <laughs> you know, so it's not about the, so, but basically it's like, you know, it's not about the experience. It's like, you're doing it almost for the sake of doing it. You know, you're doing it to be more present, um, and it's a way of being good to yourself, right? It's a way like, despite the experiences, it's a way of, uh, coming closer to your, like, or centering yourself and, and bettering your life and, you know, and being better to those around you. And I think it's very important to better yourself because otherwise you can't help those around you much at all if you can't take care of that. So yeah, I mean we can go into depth on any experience or whatever, but I want to I want to point out that those things are just side effects of doing something that's like I mean I think this life is really strange, right? It's like it's a really weird life. Like I can't explain any of it. Uh, the fact that we're all sitting here together as conscious human beings is like almost it's pretty much impossible. Like uh, being a conscious being in the universe, like the chances are like one like one in four trillion or four hundred trillion. It's a crazy number, but Anyways, like the uh, the experiences are just a side effect of doing something that's good for you
1: and, and doing something that's beneficial to those in your presence. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you made that distinction because that's something that we talk a ton about when it comes to meditation. Um, I think a lot of people get hung up on thinking during meditation. I mean, when I meditate, I think a lot. Like it's just that's the practice is coming back to that meditative state when you see the thought. It's not that you're meditating incorrectly it's just you have like it's that practice that continues to bring you back just that you know it wasn't the specific experience that you were experiencing during the yoga practice but the practice of it coming back over and over again and what it does Mm -hmm. and then coupled with the fact that you're doing those for other people and i think that's the biggest thing for meditation as much as i personally love meditation i'm doing it for the people around me because you show up so much better. You don't get mad when someone cuts you off in traffic or something or when a co-worker messes up a project. Like, mm-hmm. you take that breath, you see the gap that you practice every day with the meditation, and it's really, I think, a crucial distinction that you made that all these self-practices, I think, sometimes they come off as self-absorbed, like doing an hour of self-care a day, two hours of self-care a day, and, but it's really... Um, Doing it for yourself so you can show up for the people around you. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's yoga for the other people. And it sounds like that's a crucial tenet or a crucial pillar of that yoga practice. Yeah, you just reinforced that really well. Yeah, I mean, Sam Harris says something really good. He says, you know,
2: I mean, all you have, and this is why he's such an advocate of meditation, you know, uh, he's like, all you have, arguably, in your life is your mind, right? And that's how you form relationships with others that basically it is your relationship with others in a way you know without your mind you don't have a relationship with anybody Mm -hmm. so it's um yeah you have to take care of that and i guess i want to say this um you know i have friends in the past that were thought of like certain people a certain way because they liked to like lift weights or or meditate like i heard i've heard things like oh i don't I don't pray for myself. I pray for others. You know what I mean. Things like that, or as like, oh, you know, people that lift weights are so and so. This or meatheads, or, or you know, the list goes on and on. But I think at the end of the day, um, at, at least for me, and I know for the people around me, I mean, doing these things has made my relationship with those people better and has helped me, and has helped me understand myself more. And like, I, I can't. I couldn't. I can't, I think those are great benefits. I can't ask for anything else. Um, I, I think, I think it's, it is a selfish thing in a way, but I mean, we're all selfish and if we can use the ego and in a constructive way, right, it's, uh, it, it, that's all we can, that's all we can do. So, yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and it would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.